Section 13 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 3, Chapter 4, Struggle of Catholicism and Protestantism, 1570-72. One reason of the failure of the rising in England had been that the Catholics as a body did not join it. Their allegiance was as yet due to their queen, and they did not feel that their religion called upon them to take part in a rebellion. This feeling, however, was soon to be disturbed. Open and avowed hostility between Catholicism and Protestantism was to be introduced into England also. Pope Pius V, Michele Ghislieri, had been a Dominican inquisitor before his elevation to the papacy. Austere, zealous, and determined, he devoted all his energies to the suppression of heresy. Under his rule the Inquisition crushed out Protestantism in Italy. Though a man of fervent piety and blameless life, he shrunk from no measures which were likely to put down the schism. He rejoiced over Alva's cruelties in the Netherlands, and sent him a sword and cap which he had blessed as a token of his favor. A man of this kind was not likely to leave the English Catholics doubtful of their duties. He proceeded to the excommunication of Elizabeth, but he did it secretly, that he might not be prevented by the remonstrances of France and Spain. In May 1570, the bull of excommunication was found fixed on the door of the Bishop of London's house, and a student of Lincoln's Inn by name Felton, paid with his life for his rash act. This excommunication was felt by Elizabeth and her ministers to be a declaration of war. It was resented by the mass of the English people as an act of aggression. Moreover, fears for the Queen's life had been awakened by recent events in Scotland. The Catholic party had there roused itself for a desperate effort, and had hoped if the regent Murray were removed to succeed once more in gaining power. James Hamilton of Bothwell Ha undertook Murray's assassination, and shot him from the balcony of a house in Linlithgow as he was riding out of the town, January 23, 1570. The result was anarchy in Scotland, where for the next few years a civil war raged between the Queen's party and the adherents of the king. In England, the Parliament, which met in 1571, proceeded to pass bills declaring it high treason to call the Queen a heretic, or to affirm that any one particular person was her successor, or to publish any bull from the Pope. A bill was even introduced to compel all above a certain age to receive the communion according to the established service, but this was withdrawn after a discussion. The Catholic attack upon England had called forth severe reprisals. England entered upon a course of persecution, not, however, of religious opinions as such, but because of their political consequences. Conformity to the established church was rigidly required from all, and while Parliament passed laws against the Catholics, the High Commission Court, under the presidency of Archbishop Parker, demanded from the Puritans obedience to the established ceremonies. The religious struggle was not long in breaking out again. The old plan of the liberation of Mary, her marriage with the Duke of Norfolk, and the restoration of Catholicism was again revived. 
but this time it was seen that the aid of foreign powers was necessary for its success. Ridolfi, a Florentine who had long resided in England, was sent to confer with the Duke of Alva, Philip II, and the Pope. Philip II warmly entered into the scheme. The Pope declared himself ready to sell even the chalices from his churches for such a worthy object. It was agreed that Alva was to send ten thousand men to help the conspirators. But Ridolfi was too dull a plotter to escape the vigilance of Lord Burley, by which title Sir William Cecil was now known. A suspicious packet of papers was seized, Norfolk's secretary was imprisoned and confessed, and the whole plot was discovered. Mary's ambassador in England, the Bishop of Ross, was thrown into the tower, and the Spanish ambassador was dismissed from England. Norfolk was brought to trial before his brother peers, was found guilty of treason, and condemned to death. It was some time before Elizabeth could be brought to consent to the execution of the chief nobleman in the kingdom, but at last she gave way and Norfolk was beheaded on June 2, 1572. The rising of 1569 had failed because it was confined within two narrow limits and had not appealed to the Catholic world. Now a great plot, in which all the chief Catholic powers were to have taken part, was stopped before it could come to a head. Philip II did not venture to resent his ambassador's dismissal. The Queen only became dearer to her people as they saw the efforts directed against her. Meanwhile, in France, the dread of the encroachments of Spain had been increased. The combined fleets of Venice, the Pope, and Philip II had won a brilliant victory at Lepanto over the Turks, and a new course of aggrandizement seemed open to Philip. France drew nearer to England, and proposals were made for a marriage between Elizabeth and the Duke of Anjou, the younger brother of Charles IX. The negotiations gave Elizabeth an opportunity for the display of her vacillation and her delight in mystifying those around her. The marriage was not popular in England, and all talk of it was laid aside for a while in consequence of the events of 1572 in France. In that country, peace with the Huguenots and jealousy of Spain had become, both of them, parts of the royal policy. The young king, Charles IX, was of weak intelligence, yet of a wild and passionate nature. His education had been neglected owing to his feeble health, and he was unable to give serious attention to the affairs of state. He was entirely under the influence of his mother, Catherine de' Medici, who ruled in his name. Catherine was the daughter of the man to whom Machiavelli had dedicated the prince, and she was well skilled in all arts of dissimulation. After living powerless at court during her husband's lifetime, she was determined to satisfy her desire for power when her time came. Yet her title to power was very precarious. She was a stranger by birth. She represented no great national interest, no political party. She was supported by no great family and awoke no enthusiasm amongst the common people. Yet when she once had power in her hands, she devoted all her energies to keep it. About the great questions which at that time agitated France, she was entirely indifferent. 
but she was willing to play off one party against the other so as to maintain herself in power. Tall and of strong, commanding appearance, she exercised great influence over those who were around her. She had a powerful nature which could adapt itself to any circumstances. She had great quickness of mind and penetration. She knew well how to conciliate opponents and how to satisfy them without committing herself to definite promises. She trusted no one, and no one trusted her. She preferred to be regarded as a peacemaker and mediator between the contending parties in France, but would hesitate at nothing to rid herself of one who was likely to disturb her position. Hence, she had opposed the Guises and had been a foe to Mary of Scotland. Over Charles the Ninth, her rule seemed absolute, and she was determined to maintain it at any cost. But she saw this rule over her son's mind suddenly threatened. Charles the Ninth became jealous of the fame gained by his younger brother, the Duke of Anjou, who had been the leader of the victorious Catholics at the Battle of Montcontour. The populace of Paris was distinguished by its bitter hatred of the Huguenot, whose chief opponent was always the popular hero of the capital. Charles IX was alarmed at his brother's superior position. He was afraid of some plot against himself. Stung to a sudden energy, he determined to gain glory himself also. For this end, he would make common cause with the Huguenot and wage war against Spain. The head of the Huguenot party was also the most famous general in France, and was in French history at this age the one prominent man who rose above the level of intrigue, fanaticism, and self-seeking into a higher region of lofty self-devotion. Gaspard de Coligny was sprung from an old Burgundian family and was in early life distinguished as a soldier. He knew every branch of the soldier's trade, and to courage and coolness united a capacity for discipline and military organization. He had undertaken the hopeless task of defending Saint-Quentin against Philip's army. He had undertaken it, though he knew it to be hopeless, and knew that his reputation would suffer through the failure. He was taken prisoner in the battle, and during his imprisonment a change came over his religious opinions, and he adopted the faith of Calvin. When the religious wars began in France, Coligny fully appreciated the momentous importance of the issue involved. He counted the cost and gave himself unreservedly to the conflict. He asked his wife if she had the courage to face dangers, misfortunes, exile, and if need were, death, if she were prepared to ruin the future of her children for the sake of her religious convictions. His wife, as heroic as her husband, bade him go forth upon the path of duty without fear for her. In this spirit, Coligny entered upon the strife. His mind was not under the sway of fierce passion or desire for power or thirst for fame. Sternly and sadly, he undertook a sacred duty which he carried out without being elevated by success or cast down by failure. Through evil report and good report, he went upon his solitary way. His calm prudence and commanding temper enforced obedience upon his party, which respected and obeyed rather than loved him. High above the fierce passions, the mean intrigues, the unscrupulous self-seeking which distinguished France in his age, 
his figure rises as the one man endowed with a noble purpose who felt laid upon him a mighty weight of duty which he must carry unflinchingly to the end such was the man with whom charles the ninth now found himself brought into connection coligny had so strong a belief in the possibility of a reconciliation between the two contending parties that he went himself to the court to urge his views more decidedly he endeavoured to fan the king's dread of philip the second and prevail on him to declare war against spain a step which must aid greatly the struggling cause of protestantism in the netherlands in that country all of his savage measures had failed of complete success he flattered himself at the end of fifteen sixty nine that he had put down heresy and had reduced the provinces to obedience it only remained for him to carry out the rest of his promise to make the provinces pay for the trouble they had given and make them contribute largely to the royal resources for the future for this purpose he devised a new scheme of taxation instead of grants of money being made by the states to their prince according to their sympathy with the purposes for which he proposed to use it they were henceforth to pay according to a regular system a tax of the twentieth penny five per cent was to be paid every time real property changed hands and a tax of the tenth penny ten per cent was to be paid on all personal property or merchandise every time it was sold alva was a soldier and not a financier or he would have known that these measures would involve the entire ruin of the commerce of the netherlands an active trading people made liable to this tax of ten per cent on every sale would necessarily be unable to manufacture or sell any article at the same price as formerly instead of being the great merchants of europe they would be unable to compete with other countries whose productions were not subject to this heavy tax alva's endeavour to increase the royal income by extorting money from the netherlands would really result in a diminution of the capital sum on which the taxes must be levied and would ruin the people without enriching the king men who had stood by alva and applauded him and his severe measures against heresy now rose in opposition against him loud outcries were raised in madrid in the netherlands trade was at a standstill and men shut their shops rather than submit to the tax universal discontent and deep hatred towards alva prevailed amongst the whole mass of the people in this state of feeling it required very little to rouse the people to resistance a sudden raid of a band of netherlandish outlaws laid the foundation of the memorable revolt of the netherlands among those who had left the netherlands rather than submit to alva many were accustomed to the sea these now seizing upon vessels cruised as pirates in the channel professing to make war on alva in the name of orange hardy brave and cruel adventurers they inflicted much damage on the spanish ships and found in england a ready market for their booty alva in the beginning of fifteen seventy two remonstrated with elizabeth on the shelter which she gave to these freebooters who were at that time lying in some of the southern ports of england elizabeth wishing to be conciliatory in a little matter sent orders that the netherland pirates were no longer to be supplied with provisions forced by hunger the little fleet of twenty-four ships under the command of a rude flemish noble william de la marck set sail from england for a foray 
they were driven by stress of weather to enter the mouth of the Meuse, and came opposite the city of Brille. More in bravado than any serious expectation of success, this handful of men, not more than 250, sent a message demanding the surrender of Brille. A panic seized the magistrates and citizens. They fled and left their fortified city to the water beggars, who took possession of the city in the name of the Prince of Orange, stadtholder of the king. The failure of an attempt to regain Brille for the Spaniards gave additional courage to the Netherlanders. Flushing was the first to expel its Spanish government. The example was followed by all the chief cities of Holland and Zeeland, and many of the cities of Gelderland, Oberijssel, and Friesland. By the middle of 1572, a large portion of the Netherlands was in open revolt against Alva. Meanwhile, Count Louis of Nassau had been busy in France, where he enlisted the sympathies of the Huguenots, who sent out forces under Jean Lee to aid him in a bold scheme which he had formed of surprising Mons, the chief city of Aino. His surprise was successful, and Alva saw himself assailed on two sides. In the north, the land was in rebellion. In the south, a rising was being promoted by French help. When it was too late, he abolished his tax of the tenth penny. The revolt had now taken shape. Representatives of the Estates of Holland met at Dort in July and recognized the Prince of Orange as the king's lawful stadtholder in Holland, Zeeland, Friesland, and Utrecht. There was no talk of throwing off their allegiance to Philip II, but against the despotic system of government introduced by Alva, they set up their old constitution. The Prince of Orange had been appointed by Philip Stadtholder of Holland in 1569. Him they would follow in maintaining their lawful privileges against tyrannical governors. The revolt of the Netherlands was not directed against Philip's legitimate authority, but against the arbitrary use of his authority to introduce constitutional changes to which the estates had never agreed. Alva's first step was to send his son, Don Frederick de Toledo, to besiege Mons, which could not be defended unless speedy reinforcements arrived. jean had hurried to France to raise fresh troops, but was defeated by Don Frederick outside Mons, and few of his reinforcements reached the city. Still, Count Louis hoped for greater success, and the fate of Mons depended on Coligny's influence over the French king. End of section 13